Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am intending to cover in this audio Galatians 4, 1-7. Fairly short audio this time. The topic is Christians are sons, and as a result of being sons, they are heirs. Heirs of all the spiritual blessings that God has to give us as sons. Now our context is this, in Galatians 3, at the end of the chapter, Paul goes through a fairly long disposition on the superiority of the promise to Abraham as opposed to the law of Moses. The law of Moses is dealt with by works, and the promise of Abraham is received by faith, because Abraham believed and was reckoned to him as righteousness. And because we are children of Abraham, we are sons, we are heirs, we are children of Abraham, and we receive our inheritance through faith, not through the works of the law. And of course, the whole context of the book of Galatians is, Paul is fighting legalist Judaizers who are saying that you need to follow the Jewish law in order to get saved. So we start now in verses 1 and 2 in Galatians 4. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and stewards until the time set by his father. Now, as long as the heir is a child, that means a minor child before the age before the age of adulthood, when he can receive an inheritance, he's a child. Paul is using a metaphor here that's very similar to the pedagogue metaphor that he used in Galatians 3. The law is a pedagogue, a tutor that leads us to Christ. It protects us, keeps us from destroying ourselves, but it's not. But then it's done away with when we when we are no longer a child and we reach majority. The law is done away with. So that was his metaphor then, and this is a similar metaphor. It's a little bit different, but it's similar. Now think if you have a minor child, and the father has a will, and he leaves an inheritance to the minor child. Now again, this is talking about Christians as heirs, so here's a metaphor. So the father leaves an inheritance to the minor child. Well, the minor child can't receive that inheritance all at once, because he's a minor. So He's under the Holman Christian Study Bible here has guardians and stewards. A guardian is like a testamentary guardian. As Adam Clark says, it deals with the person of the heirs. There needs to be a guardian to take care of the person of the child, to raise him as a parent, if you will. And a steward is like what we would call a trustee in modern legal parlance, a trustee that takes care of the property of the state and doles it out at proper intervals and then turns the whole corpus over when majority is reached. So it's very similar. I've always been interested in how ancient people's laws are very similar to ours today. So the metaphor is this. Well, let's let's take it through the process here. Let's say that you have a child. He he his father dies while he is a minor. The will appoints a testamentary guardian. That's what we, I, I've I've written up wills like this, and you say so and so and so and so is the testamentary guardian. You call it of the child. That person is responsible for raising the child, basically. And then you leave your estate into a trust, and then the trustee will then dole out the money for education, for health, whatever. And then when the child reaches usually 18 or sometimes 21, sometimes 25, whatever the testator chooses, when the child reaches the age that he desires, then the corpus of the trust is turned over to the child. That's, and, that, and the trustee hands the corpus over to the child. The Holman Christian Study Bible calls this person a steward. It's like a trustee. A guardian is like a testimony of guardian. So it's very similar to our legal procedure. Now, what's the point of this metaphor? A Jewish Christian is under the law. 
He is being protected by that law, the Mosaic law. But he hasn't really inherited all the spiritual goodies that God has for him. He's just being protected by that law, kept from destroying himself, kept from ruining himself like children tend to do, and kept from squandering his inheritance as children tend to do. That's why you have testamentary guardians and trustees under an estate, under a will. And so the law is protecting him, but still, he's just like a slave because he hasn't got legal title to all that money yet. He's got what they call equitable title. That means it's equitably it's his. It's it's his. He can get it later on, but when it's full legal title, that doesn't happen. When does that happen? When he reaches the age set by the testator, the, the father who's died. That is when he can receive his money. Well, what time is it that, in our metaphor, is it that a Jewish person under the law, being guarded by the law, being under the trusteeship of the law, when can he get his full inheritance? Well, what's the time set by the father? The time is when Jesus came. The father sends Jesus. He says, okay, no more guardianship for you Jews. No more stewardship for you Jews. No more trusteeship. It's all yours now. And so what Paul is saying is, why do you want to go back, legalist, into a situation where you don't have full title to your money, to your inheritance, to your spiritual inheritance? Why would you want to do that? So the time set by the Father, of course, is set in the will, as I just said, but in the metaphor, in the analogy, it's the time set by God the Father, God the Father to send Jesus. We now go to Galatians 4, 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. Now, the time that he's talking about is under the law. When we were children, again, children need guardians, children need stewards or trustees, and so that's what he's talking about. That period of time before you get legal title to your inheritance, before Jesus comes, you're just a child. God still loves you, but you are not entrusted with the inheritance yet. And in fact... You're a slave. You're just like a slave. Slave has no title to an inheritance, and neither do you, even though you're Jews. Now, when Paul says we also, I'm assuming the we refers to we Jews because that makes the metaphor work better because Gentiles don't, aren't really under the Mosaic law. We were children in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. Now, what does that phrase elemental forces of the world mean? The NIV translates it the basic principles of the world. The meaning of the Greek word literally, according to the NIV Study Bible, is things placed side by side in a row, like the ABCs, which of course is fundamental. And so from that idea of being placed side by side, like A, B, C, D, E, F, that it came to mean a basic or fundamental principle. And so the NIV Study Bible says that elemental forces of the world refers to all Jews or Gentiles who are under the elemental forms of religion, the basics. Don't kill, don't steal, don't rape, and don't lie. And, of course, in the case of the Jews, it was the Mosaic Law in general. In the case of the Gentiles, according to the NIV Study Bible, it's the elemental forms of religion uh, which were expressed in idolatry, as in Galatians 4, 8. But in the past, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. Now, this is assuming that Paul is referring to Gentiles as well as Jews. Maybe he is. I don't take a stand on that. It sounds to me like he was referring to Jews only because he says we. He could be talking about we humans or we Christians, but at any rate, before you get slaves, saved, you are a slave either to the Jewish law or to the law of conscience or to sin, like idolatry, whatever. Even if Paul is not directly talking about that kind of slavery, we can make an application to that, can't we? Because we know we're enslaved, enslaved before we get born again. 
Elemental forces of the world. Now, I love that word because it's the same word that's used in Second Peter, Second Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements, the elemental principles of the world, the elements will burn and be dissolved. That Greek word is stoichia. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Well, of course, everybody says that's burning up of the world at the end of the time. I always say, well, you know, God's trying to redeem the heavens and the earth. He's going to burn it up first. Mm, that's a little bit extreme purification. Uh, where are the people on the earth going to be as the earth is being burned up? Are they going to be hover ground and out of space so God can plop them back down on the redeemed earth? I mean, there's a lot of problems with this. But the interesting thing is that word elements always refers to law. There's, I think it's nine examples. I looked this up in Strong's Concordance one time, and every time it means law, le elemental legal principles, fundamental legal principles. It's the law. And John Owen, the famous Puritan divine who taught at Cambridge University in the 16th century, he says that that what Peter is referring to here is referring to the destruction of the Jewish religion in AD 70 because it is a religion of law, and it's going to be burnt up and dissolved, which happened in 8070. So the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070. And as an Orthodox preterist, I resonate with that interpretation. I think that makes perfectly good sense. Now, Gill, John Gill, who is perfectly aware of that, of the normal interpretation of 2 Peter 3.10 that says it's the elements of the earth to be burnt up, he says that here in Galatians that when Paul says that we're before the time set by the Father, we are slaves to the elemental forces of the world. He says that cannot mean slaves to fire, water, earth, and air. Can't mean that. But then he goes to Second Peter 3.10 and says, well, at the end of the world, the elemental principles of the world would be burned up. It does refer to fire, earth, and wind, and air. I wonder why the inconsistency. To me, elemental forces, elemental forces of the world is referring to law. And, well, at any rate, whatever, that's a, side, that's a rabbit trail. Here in Galatians 4.3, is no question it means the law. We were in slavery under, under the elemental forces of the world. We were in slavery under the law. Now let's look at that word we. I told you that I thought that it meant Jews only. John, uh, Adam, uh, John Gill and Adam Clark, in favor of that interpretation of we, referring to we Jews were under slavery to the law. The logic backs that up because Paul is talking about being a prisoner and slave of the law of the Mosaic law, and Gentiles weren't under the Mosaic law. So that's why I take it to mean Jews only. Jamison, Fawcett, and Brown, on the other hand, say that it refers to all of us, Jews and Gentiles, and elementary principles of the, of the world could refer to idols because Paul refers to idols in verse 8 of Galatians 4, which I think I have read to you. Maybe not. Let me roll down here to Galatians 4, 8. And we read this, but in the past, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God. So, so, so there, Paul is talking about at the time when you didn't know God, when you were a slave, just as, as he's talking about up here in our current verses 2 through 3, he's talking about being a slave before the time set by the Father, that you're going to get your inheritance. You were enslaved, and you were a Gentile, and you were enslaved to idols. So, I think you could go either way. I'm not going to take a stand on that too hard, whether we Jews or we people we were enslaved before the time set by the father now let me give you some quotations by two commentators who believe the we is referring to we jews were under the law not we gentiles but we jews this is from john gill quote the several institutions of the mosaic economy which were to the jews when an abc or an alphabet of letters is to one that is beginning to learn or what an accidents and grammar be to such who are learning any language 
and which contain the rudiments of it as the physical elements of the first principles of nature and the general rules of speech and language are the rudiments thereof. So the Mosaic institutions were the elements, rudiments, or first principles of the Jewish religion, taught them by the law as their schoolmaster, and by which they were used as children. These are called elements in allusion to the first principles of nature and learning and the elements of the world because they lay in outward, worldly, and earthly things as meats, drinks, diverse washings, and so forth. Well, that's a very fancy definition of elements. Basically, the legal principles that held the Jewish nation together were called fundamental elements, laws. And here's Adam Clark talking about force, elemental forces of nature. Quote, this is, this is a, quote, a mere Jewish phrase. The principles of this world, that is, the rudiments or principles of the Jewish religion. So, whether Paul is talking about Jews or Jews and Gentiles is a question that can be debated, but what cannot be debated is that before the time set by the Father, we are all slaves. Whether we're Jews or Gentiles, we're slaves. I think he's talking about Jews here in verse 3. I think he's going to switch and talk about Gentiles later in, in verse 8 in our next audio. But either way, we're slaves without Christ. Verse 4, Galatians 4, when the time came to completion... God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The time, of course, he's referring to the time when the testator, the person who died, decides to set in the will the time that the trustee has to turn over all the property to the child. That's the time, the time when he receives his inheritance. The testamentary trustee turns over the corpus of the, of the estate to the child. And to carry forth the analogy, Paul says, when the time came to completion, that's talking about when the time came when the fullness of time came, as you can state it, that the children are going to receive their inheritance and they're going to, be they're going to completely receive the inheritance, spiritual inheritance that God the Father has for them. When was that? When God sent his son. When the time came to completion, God sent his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. Now, why did he say born of a woman? To show that Jesus was fully human. I don't know why Paul would choose that time to say that he was born of a woman, born under the law. I guess to show that he, that Paul, that Jesus was subject to Jewish law, so this emancipation of the estate, if you will, was per, perfectly according to legal principles, according to the Mosaic law. But once the estate is handed over to the child, there is no more Mosaic law. It's over with. In fact, even in law, once the the corpus of a trust is handed over to the to the legatee, if you will, to the person who is receiving the inheritance, once that corpus is handed over, guess what? The trust is legally dissolved. It's kaputski. It's over. Likewise, the law is over. All right, so Jesus was born under the law in Galatians 4.4 4 and in Galatians 4.5 to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So again, just like you redeem a piece of land from a mortgage or a guitar out of hock from a pawn shop, or you redeem a slave from uh, mastery of his owner by paying his redemption price, it's all done legally. And likewise, Jesus did it legally. He came under the law. Paul's not trying to trash the law. He's just trying to say it's over with. It filled its purpose as a guardian, as a steward of the Jews before Jesus came. Nothing wrong with that. The law is just and holy, as Paul said in Romans, but his purpose was not to get you saved. All right, so Jesus redeems us under the law. And, of course, redemption means to buy out of hock. If I want to buy my son out of slavery, I had to sell him to, to another master because I didn't have any money. I needed to raise cash in the ancient times. I'd sell my son as a slave to the new owner, but I had a right to redeem him, which means when I got my money back, I could go back to the owner and say, okay, I want him back. Here's your money. Maybe there's some interest involved. I don't know, but 
you get your son back, and he's no longer a slave. So that's what it means. It means to buy out of hock, to buy out of slavery, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when we get bought out of slavery under the, under the law, we become a son. Now, a son, that means you've got the full inheritance. You're not a slave anymore. <laughs> You're not in that no man's land where, where the riches are yours potentially, but they're not yours actually. No, you get you got it now. You're You're a son. And, of course, Paul points out that under the law, you're not a son. Do you want to be like that Judaizers in Galatia? Do you really want to be like a slave, or do you want to be like a son? Paul uses the adoption metaphor in other places, Romans 8:15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So they, we have the, the slave-son dichotomy again. Spirit of slavery, nope. Fear, nope. But yes, spirit of adoption, you're a son now. So you cry out, Abba, Father, because the son calls calls out Father. A slave does not call the man his father who's not his father. Only a son can call his father Father. Ephesians 1.5, Paul says this, He predestined predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will. Jesus is a divine son by divinity, and we are sons of God by adoption. So that means that we are, in some sense, the brothers of Jesus Christ. God uses family metaphors to talk about our new relationship with him. That A family means, hey, I'm very close to you. I care for you. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. Now there's that we again to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. The NIV study Bible says he's referring to Jews and Gentiles. John Gill says he's primarily referring to the Jews but including the Gentiles. James Vossett Brown says this, quote, Primarily the, the Jews, but as these were the representative people of the world, the Gentiles, too, are included in the redemption. Well, who knows? It's true of both of us whether Paul meant it here or not. Because we can look at other verses that say we are adopted as sons, like Romans 8.15, whether Paul meant it here in Galatians 4.5 or, or not. What is this slavery that we're bought out of, redeem those under the law so that we're no longer slaves? Adam Clark says the slavery was the Jews' slavery to his ordinances, his ordinances, his sacrifices, his ablutions, etc. Having to keep all that stuff, that ceremonial stuff. Let's go to Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, the only way that you're going to qualify to be sons is by being free from the law. And as a result of being from the law, you get one big super benefit. The Holy Spirit of Christ lives in you is sent into your hearts to live in your heart. All right, let's take this verse and take it one word at a time. First of all, it says, because you are sons, that is the prerequisite for us receiving the Spirit. You have to be God's son. So a new guardian replaces the old guardian, which was the law. The old guardian is the law. The new guardian is Jesus Christ himself, the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now, law and spirit is one of the great contrasts in the gospel Another great contrast is flesh and spirit. For example, in Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Flesh, not no flesh, but in the spirit, since the spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong in him. So we have you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And here we have a contrast between the law, the law and the spirit. He's been talking about all through the first five verses of this chapter talking about the law and we're slaves under the law, but now as sons we have the spirit in our hearts. So we have a contrast between the law and sonship and the law and the Holy Spirit living in us. Now that contrast between 
flesh and spirit and and law and spirit, it makes sense because flesh and law are both contrasted with the spirit because when one uses one's flesh to keep the law, death results. But the spirit, on the other hand, by contrast, brings life. So flesh and law are identified with each other. Why is that? Because one uses his flesh to try to do the works of the law. So the, the two terms are similar in meaning. Both of them, when you see flesh, think law. When you see flesh and law, think works. Law works, as some theologians call it, all of which produces death. Then when you see spirit and life, that's the opposite of that because you're free from the law. Now, this verse says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son. And I just mentioned the spirit was the new guardian to replace the old guardian, which is the law. This guards against antinomianism. Oh, you're free from the law. I can go out and do anything I want. No, you got a new guardian. It's the Holy Spirit. And I talked about the contrast between law and spirit. But now, let's look at the word son. God has sent the spirit of his son. So the Holy Spirit is said to belong to Jesus. The spirit of Christ, if you will. Well, the Holy Spirit in Scripture is called the Holy Spirit. It's called the Spirit of the Son. And it's called the Spirit of God the Father. To show that the Holy Spirit is God. Just like the other two persons of the Trinity. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God, there, the Holy Spirit is said to belong to God the Father, lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, there, the Holy Spirit is said to belong to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And so here in Galatians 4, 6, we have the Spirit of his Son, the Spirit of the second person of the Trinity. So we don't need to get hung up on saying, well, is it God's Holy Spirit or is it Jesus' Holy Spirit? And no. Or is it just the Holy Spirit? No. It's Jesus lives in us. God lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Let's don't get too particular about which person lives in us. Of course, it, it, let me be careful there. Of course, Jesus, the second person, doesn't live inside of us because he's local. He's got a body and he's in heaven. So he doesn't live in us, but he lives in us by his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit of God, because we're sons, he's in our hearts. The Spirit of God cries, Abba, Father. God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Our hearts. Now, there, that word, our, shows that Paul has community with the ones he's been scolding. And remember, he's called them foolish Galatians twice, at least twice that I can think of in, in chapter 3. He calls them fools. But now, he's saying, our I got the Son in my heart, and you Galatians have the Son in your heart, too. The Spirit of the Son in your heart, too. So we're together. We're brothers. We're fellow adopted sons. Now, when it says the Holy Spirit is in our hearts, that's a common way to put it. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Spirit of God lives in you. Paul says the same thing, same thing here in Galatians 4, 6. He says that God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. So that means deep within us, the heart is the immaterial part of the human being. Somehow the Holy Spirit, I like to use the, 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 the expression, his Holy Spirit mingles with our spirit, is united with our spirit, is joined with our spirit. That's how close we are. We've been born again by the imperishable seed of God. And the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. So he's going to take care of you as the coronavirus ravages people, kills people, and destroys the economy. Jesus lives in our hearts, and he ain't going to let us go. Now, the Holy Spirit, who is in our hearts, says is said to be, by Paul here in verse 6, crying. Abba, Father, crying. The Greek word is a vivid verb expressing deep emotion, according to the NIV Study Bible. It's often used of an inarticulate cry. So it's not just the Holy Spirit is speaking to God. He's crying to God. Ah! 
inarticulate. Here's a use of the Greek word, Matthew 27:50. Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. That's when he died on the cross. So it's a word of deep emotion. Now, who's crying? Now, this is an, it's sort of a minor point, really, but it's kind of interesting. Who's doing the crying in our hearts? Is it us and the Holy Spirit helping us, or is it the Holy Spirit doing it, doing it on his own motion without our participating in that intercession, in that crying out, Abba, Father? Who's doing it? Well, John Gill says it's the Spirit doing it. Here, the Spirit is regarded as the agent in praying and the believer as his organ. Well, I guess John Gill is saying that that they're working together. The believer is the principal kind of the believer sends the spirit out to cry, Abba, Father. Here's a scripture that's similar to that in Romans 8:26. In the same way, the spirit also joins to help in our weakness. So the spirit kind of joins with the believer because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. That verse has always been a little mysterious to me, but it, that verse clearly says the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Now, whether we, and it says the Spirit joins with us. So the idea to me is that we we pray and the Holy Spirit prays with us, even though we don't exactly know how to pray. He's praying just the right way. The other option is just the believer praying. John Gill says this, though it, mean crying to God, though crying to God is here ascribed to the Spirit, yet is not properly his the crying to God is not properly the believers crying to God but the believers is not the spirits crying to God but the believers crying to God and is attributed to the spirit because he excites encourage and assist the believer as a spirit of adoption to call God their father well I don't know let's put it this way both of us we and the Holy Spirit we cry out to God with words that are not expressible groanings that shows that God really, really, really cares for us. Now, what does he cry out? Abba, Father. Now, we've got to talk about Abba. Because there's an unfortunate myth floating around that Abba means Daddy. Oh, Daddy. And every time I hear that, my skin crawls. I feel like saying, okay, you want to call him Daddy to show how close you are to him? Why don't you go out and call him Pops? <laughs> What's the difference? Daddy. Well, actually, Abba is the Aramaic for the Greek father. So, Abba, Father is Abba, Aramaic father is Greek, as according to the NIV Study Bible. It does not mean daddy, and I'm going to take the following discussion from a website called Reasons for Hope Jesus. It doesn't matter because there's lots of, lots of scholarly stuff out here debunking this myth, but this is just the one I'm going to use. The idea is thought to have originated from Joachim Jeremias' New Testament theology. Now, Joachim Jeremias was a well-known New Testament theologian, so he had a lot of gravitas, and so a lot of people believed what he said. He said that Abba derived from a small child's chatter. A small kid can't say father in, in the Aramaic, I guess. And so he says, and so there you get Abba. But Jeremiah never did say that Abba meant daddy. He just said that the word came from the chatterings of a small child. I guess people took it a little bit further and said, well, therefore, Abba must mean daddy. He never said that. Now, here's some citations from authorities to show that Abba does not mean daddy. It just means father. These two, uh, this is from uh, Reasons for Hope website. These two words, Abba and Pater, mean the same thing. Pater is the Greek for father. Abba and Pater mean the same thing. Abba was simply Jesus using the more commonly used word for father during his time. The Aramaic was used more. John Gill says that the father was just added for the sake of explanation. The two words mean the same thing. Abba for the Aramaic, people that want to listen, look, listen to it in Aramaic, and Father for those who like the Greek better. 
I think that explains it, and that's the end of it. But let me give you some more quotes. Here's a quote from the famous scholar James Barr from an article called Abba Isn't Daddy in the Journal of Theological Studies, volume 39, 1988, page 46. Quote, It is fair to say that Abba in Jesus' time belonged to a family or colloquial register of language as distinct from more formal and ceremonious language. But in any case, it was not a childish expression comparable with daddy. It was a more solemn, responsible adult addressed to a father. And as a matter of fact, the word Abba was used by kids all the way up to adult kids, 18-year-olds, all the way up to adults calling their father Abba. Usually, you know, a 30-year-old man doesn't call his, well, I guess he could call his daddy, daddy, but it's more like father, more not pops. Hey, pops. Here's another quote from Barr, same same article. If the New Testament writers had been conscious of the nuanced daddy, they could have easily expressed themselves so. But in fact, they were well aware that the nuance is not that of daddy, but of father. The semantics of itself, based on various evidences, all agree in supporting the nuanced father rather than the nuanced daddy. Now, another scholar named Mary Rose D'Angelo in the Journal of Biblical Literature, Volume 111, Number 4, Winter of 1992, pages 615 to 616, she says, quote, There are Greek diminutives of father, e.g. papas, and the community chose not to use them. In other words, there's Greek words that can be used to say daddy, but Paul did not use the Greek word for daddy. He used the Greek word for father, pater. And he used the Greek word for father, and Abba was just an explanation of the word father. So Abba means father, it doesn't mean daddy. Now, of course, translations are tricky and nuances are tricky. Here's the nuance of the word. As the NIV Study Bible says, it's expressive of an especially close relationship to God. So in other words, I can call my father father, but it shows that I have a special relationship with him. There's no other man in the world that's a father to me except my father. So it's a special relationship, but it's still, and it's not really formal. It's not like saying Mr. President, but it's also not informal to the extent of calling your father, hey, hey, pops, hey, daddy, Roo. no. John Gill talks about, puts it this way, quote, it's repetition, Abba, father, repetition, may denote the vehemency of filial affection, the strength of faith and confidence as to interest in the relation and being expressed both in Hebrew and Greek, or that's Aramaic and Greek may show that God is the father both of Jews and Gentiles and that there's but one father of all. So, say, Gill mentions that it's, it's, it's a little bit closer than sheer formality, but it's not so casual as to say, Daddy, it's somewhere in between. That expression, Abba, Father, by the way, is used in two other scriptures, Mark 14:36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus called his father, Abba. Can you see Jesus the Son calling God the Father? Hey, Pops, how about take this, take this cup away from me? Hi, Daddy, take this cup away. Come on. Jesus doesn't talk to God the Father that way, especially not in the Garden of Gethsemane. Romans 8:15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We go down to verse 7, Galatians 4. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. A slave under the law, but a son under Jesus. For you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Because that's what sons do. They inherit from their father. You're no longer a slave to what? A slave to the flesh, slave to the law, slave to the lust of the world, slave to Satan. It's all the same thing you legalistic Judaizers who are destroying the freedom of the Galatian churches. 
you're a son, of course, through adoption. We are not gods. We're not little gods, as Kenneth Copeland likes to say. The heretic Kenneth Copeland likes to say, you are not little gods, but you are a son. And if you're a son, you're an heir. An heir of what? Of God himself, as Adam Clark puts it. That kind of summarizes it pretty good. An heir through God. An heir of God through God. Everything that God has is your everything that you need for your spiritual sustenance, salvation, joy, and prosperity. Your spiritual prosperity, it comes from God. And it's yours because you're an heir. It's yours. You are special. You have what the world does not have. I mean, I just read this morning where the German finance minister, because of the coronavirus epidemic, pandemic, killed himself, laid himself on a railroad track, killed himself because he couldn't face the economic consequences for Germany and I guess for the world, too, of what was happening. Well, he had nothing but money for his heir, and he couldn't stand it. He killed himself. Christians know that if you get stripped of everything, you're still going to inherit everything spiritually, and God will take care of his children physically, too. Read the Sermon on the Mount. The birds don't worry about what they're going to eat. The f they don't store up stuff in the barn, but they don't worry. The flowers don't worry about what they're going to wear. You're an heir through God. That means the whole everything that God has is for you because he cares for you. He thinks enough of you that he puts his Holy Spirit in you to adopt you as his son. Now, how close can you get? Do you think God's going to let his son go? Will he ever leave you or forsake you? Deuteronomy 38, somewhere in the first couple of verses. How about in Hebrews, in the Hebrews I forgot the chapter. I will never leave you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you because you're a son. God doesn't leave his sons alone. Here's some scripture expressing the same idea. Galatians 3.29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. You're an heir. Romans 8.37. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We inherit everything. Sure, we suffer. Yeah. But... Bottom line is we inherit everything, too, because we are heirs. All right, that finishes up verses 1 through 7. We are sons and we are heirs. In the next section of Galatians 4, which we'll take up in our next audio, Paul goes from the theoretical, if you will, or shall I say the theological, to more practical concerns of how he cares for the Galatians personally. We'll take that up in the next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> 